Hello and welcome to the first official episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last week was our teaser episode, so this is our first actual story. Alistair, you gave me a clue last week that this story would be about perhaps a stadium at Rushcutters Bay that was demolished to make way for the Eastern Suburbs railway line. So that's the basis from which I'm starting. I'm not sure what else it might be about, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Yes, Jed, you uh, made an absolute mockery of my cryptic clue last week and correctly identified that the stadium demolished in 1970 to make way for a new suburban train line was in Rushcutters Bay, just to the east of King's Cross. So my congratulations on that. I think that's setting a very difficult precedent to follow. To be honest, I'm already terrified for the cryptic clue at the end of the episode for me. (laughs) You mentioned last week, although you absolutely nailed the location of this uh, stadium that you weren't sure of any events that had taken place there. Uh, Since then, has anything popped into your head or do you have any wild guesses as to what kind of event might have been staged there on Boxing Day 1908? Right. Well, I don't. However, I did get a text from my dad after he listened to last week's podcast informing me that in 1967, he saw The Who at the stadium and his sister saw The Beatles there in 1964. Excellent. That's, that's hilarious. That, yeah, at the end of the episode, I, you know, where, where are they now? Well, they're demolished now, but where, where, where do they go from there? I do mention some of the famous bands that played there, but that's great that we have a family connection to The Beatles playing there and The Who playing there. Yes, in that case, 1908, obviously a little too early for The Beatles and The Who, but you will be finding out all about it right now. But before I begin, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. In my case, the Nisanan people of the Yuba River watershed in the Sierra Nevada. And in my case, the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And then also the people uh, on whose land this story takes place, which is the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. All right, Jed, so I'm just going to come out and uh, start the story at the end of the story and tell you what it was that happened in 1908 on Boxing Day. And then we'll kind of go back from there and figure out how that came to be. So on Boxing Day 1908, before a crowd of 20,000 Sydney-siders, an African-American boxer named Jack Johnson defeated Tommy Burns, a white Canadian, to become the first ever black heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, This was a particularly historically significant event because the heavyweight world champion had previously been a title that was in practice impossible for a black athlete to obtain since all previous white champions had drawn the color line and uh, simply refused to fight against a black athlete. There you go. Yeah. So uh, this episode, I'm basically going to be trying to go back and understand how the heck it happened that this important uh, event between two North American boxers ended up taking place in Rushcutters Bay, Sydney in 1908. Right, so it's not an indigenous boxer. Uh, no, it is not. That was kind of where I assumed that what that was going to be about. The other thing that immediately sprung to mind, which is slightly off topic, is a probably extremely stupid question. Was it on Boxing Day deliberately? Is that an intentional pun on part of the organisers? I'm so or was glad Boxing that you Day asked not that. a thing in 1908? No, I, I looked I looked into that because that was the question that immediately sprung into my head. I was like, maybe they box a lot on uh, on Boxing Day. Maybe that's the thing because I, I don't know much about boxing. Uh, it turns out that different boxing is more to do with the boxes that you have presence in. And I think from my very cursory research that Boxing Day is named after um, the gifts that very wealthy aristocrats would give their servants uh, the day after Christmas. So, th- And then the servants would go home to spend time with their family because they'd spent all of Christmas looking after the wealthy people. Typical. Typical capitalism. Uh, yeah, or 
I don't know, feudalism just continued. I don't know. But yes, yeah, so Boxing Day, I, maybe it was a funny pun, who can say, but it the the very idea of Boxing Day doesn't actually have anything to do with it. It's a distraction. Yeah. But good question, because I, I, I actually thought the same thing and looked it up. So I've already kind of given the game away that I don't know much about boxing. Thank God, neither do I. Yeah, good. Because uh, I'm going to start out with a little bit of the history of boxing, because that was the first thing that sprung to my mind when I heard about this event was what was going on, that this was the first time that there was a black world ch- champion and what had happened beforehand. Uh, was this something that had been going on for decades and decades? Or yeah, how did it come about? So to start, a quick bit of historical scene setting when it comes to boxing. Through much of the 1800s, uh, boxing was quite different from how we think of it today. And these were the wild days of what was called bare knuckle boxing. (laughs) Basically, this uh, bare knuckle boxing consisted of uh, more or less illegal and fairly chaotic fights with a lot of grappling and gouging. And the champions would generally be locally or regionally known. And there was no real widespread recognition of a world champion. Uh, So you would be the best prize fighter in London or Boston or New England or Sydney or something like that. But uh, it was kind of a local scene. It was done kind of behind closed doors in back rooms with people placing bets. And it was a bit of a kind of shady scene with not much press coverage. See, that's the kind of sporting scene that appeals to me. (laughs) And I wish sporting could be like that now, you know, like you see in movies, these, these dodgy backroom brawls and people throwing fists full of cash at each other. And you think, man, that's where I want to be. And then you see your friends watching sport these days and it's just all bloody big screens in the back of the RSL and lager in it. Exactly. Lager with logo in the foam. Yeah, no, it's true. It was a different, different time, different time. So things begin to change in the 1860s uh, and 1870s with the introduction of what are known as the Marquess of Queensbury rules. Uh, These awfully posh sounding rules require that boxers wear gloves. They've ruined the game. Uh, that it be a, quote, fair stand-up boxing match, uh, end quote, with no wrestling on the ground and no striking an opponent when they're down or on their knees and things like that. The Marquess has ruined the game. Well, it's interesting because these Marquess of Queensbury rules are still the rules more or less that are used today. So they really, yeah, they established how boxing is. And that's why we needed cage fighting and MMA and stuff to bring a bit of the spice back. Well, interestingly, yeah, it seems like we are going back to that. You'd probably be unsurprised to hear that these rules were designed in an attempt to make boxing more appealing to the middle and upper classes in Britain. Typical. This wasn't necessarily completely successful but boxing was becoming increasingly popular and prominent in the USA. And after some decades of hesitancy about these new soft rules, uh, by the early 1890s, gloved modern boxing matches were eagerly followed by nationwide newspaper coverage in the USA and challenges moved across the continent by railroad and even overseas on steamships for prominent bouts. And so you could, with some credibility, claim that there was a heavyweight world champion by the early 1890s. Despite its increasing popularity, boxing was still only just emerging from its illicit roots. And uh, as is often the case uh, with activities like this that kind of originated on the margins of society, it was actually historically a comparatively racially diverse sport. And in particular, it was very popular with recent immigrant groups in America, but also had seen African-American boxers achieve some degree of prominence in the 1800s. However, John Sullivan, the first widely recognized heavyweight world champion, uh, refused to fight against any black challenger, claiming that he would defend his title against, quote, all fighters, first come, first served, as long as they're white. And <laughs> doesn't seem to it's be... like the opposite of the Model T Ford. In what way? Any color you want, as long as it's black. Yeah, 
I like it. <laughs> it's also an extremely clever strategy to minimize the pool of potential uh, competitors. Yes. So we'll get right to that. So basically it's a very clever strategy because if you've got a boxer who is very worrying to you because they are a more talented boxer than you are, it's a very convenient excuse uh, for not fighting against them if you've drawn the color line, as they called it. And it meant that you could retain your uh, world, world heavyweight title and the fame and wealth that came with it because you didn't have to fight against a potentially superior black boxer if there was one around that was worrying you. Um, however, it was also uh, obviously kind of deeply emblematic of the racial ideology and deep-seated discrimination of the time because the heavyweight champion of the world is theoretically the strongest and most skillful fighter in the world. And so it's fairly clear that have, having a black man win that title would strike a major blow to the more or less widely spread dogma of white physical and intellectual superiority at the time. And what I'm wondering, Alistair, is... and You've started on a your first episode's a sporting topic, which really leaves me with glaring gaps in my knowledge. But as I understood it, in America in the early 20th century, there was a Negro League baseball league. And so there was, I like, and I could be completely wrong here, but there was like almost a twin um, sporting competition that was racially segregated, which stands to reason since the whole country was like that. Did that exist with boxing? Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I believe there was a separate baseball league. Yes. So what did end up happening was that they would proclaim a colored world champion. And that's what Jack Johnson was at one time. And we will definitely get to that soon. So it did end up being where uh, you have the world champion with no qualification, even though there's obvious qualifications there. And then you have the colored uh, heavyweight world champion. Mm-hmm. So how does this relate to Sydney? All right. Well, I thought you'd get sick of it. We've got a little bit before we get to Sydney, but I promise we've got some good Sydney content coming up. I look forward to it. So, so Jack Johnson, uh, who's the uh, the black boxer who we're interested in, who fought in Sydney, he was born in 1878 in Galveston, Texas. Johnson discovered at a fairly young age that he was a talented fighter and that he could f- earn more from winning bare knuckle prize fights uh, than the wages on offer at the Galveston docks. Johnson eventually ended up in California, and that's where the major boxing matches of the day were often being held. And after winning a series of impressive bouts, uh, he became the colored heavyweight world champion of the world, which was exactly what you were asking about before. This was kind of an unofficial title, but it was nevertheless widely recognized due to the lack of opportunity to fight for the regular title for black fighters. So there was obviously a degree of interracial fighting going on yes so it was just certain white fighters refused to fight black fighters but not all and there wasn't sort of a socially mandated you can't do that yes and that's what's really interesting about it is that in fact all of these people who became the all of these white fighters who became the world champion all of them without fail had fought against uh, black fighters while kind of rising up the ranks because it was a fairly mixed sport but then once they became the world champion, uh, they would then say, okay, I'm keeping this precedent going that I'm not going to fight against a, a black fighter. And therefore I will kind of make sure that the world champion is always going to remain white. Seems very suspicious to me. Yeah. Yeah. And we will get to that. Uh, basically, it it's, it's, a, it's a very hard uh, thing to, con- to keep up. You know, it's... It, is obviously suspicious and people even even in this day and age people do seem to have thought that it was a little bit suspicious um so while in california jack johnson fought and knocked out the brother of the world champion the world champion being called jim jeffries 
And eventually the pressure on the said Jim Jeffries began to mount as he took on a series of uninspiring bouts against the likes of part-time miners and uh, Joe blows off the street to avoid fighting uh, Johnson, who was the obvious contender for the world title, but was black. Uh, so some uh, newspapers pointed out just what you uh, pointed out, Jed, and that uh, Jim, Jim Jeffries, having already fought on three separate occasions, black boxes before becoming heavyweight world champion, was really pretty unable to provide a decent defense of his arbitrary decision to draw the color line uh, now that he was champion. So the Los Angeles Times even went so far as to say that the public, through the daily newspapers, demands a fight for the championship on behalf of Jack Johnson. Jeffries must heed the call. Go the public. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that, to be honest, it was. I think the Los Angeles Times might have been going out on a limb there, and I'm not sure that all newspapers in the public were on the same page. But uh, Los Angeles Times is a big newspaper, so there were at least some people who thought this this practice is suspicious and hard to defend. Um, so, Jed, my question to you is: What do you think Jim Jeffries does under this immense pressure to fight against Jack Johnson? I reckon he doubles down. And absolutely refuses to, and probably offers to fight two other people at once to demonstrate his incredible <laughs> prowess while avoiding the actual issue at hand. It's, it's actually it's a good guess. Instead, he uh, he decides to just call it a day. He just retires, and he uh, retires to an alfalfa farm of all places. He decides that that's his calling. He claimed that there were no logical challenges for him to fight, by which he meant white challenges. And so he said, at the age of twenty nine calling it a day there's, there's nothing more for me to do here time for a bit of real estate speculation in the san fernando valley yeah exactly time was ripe for that so when announcing his retirement jeffries also had the problem of who the next world champion was going to be if he was just going to call it a day as the champion so he agreed to referee a fight to determine his successor as heavyweight world champion to try to lend this whole very suspicious process some kind of legitimacy didn't they have referees back in the 1910s yeah we'll see that the, the referees seem to be quite odd people during this time period it seems like there weren't any professional referees you kind of just chose a person to be the referee so at this point you probably won't be at all surprised to know that uh, johnson was excluded uh, from this fight with jim jeffries as the referee where and they selected a different duo to fight it out both of whom with no coincidence at all were white uh, the fight was fairly poorly attended, and the winner uh, followed tradition by declaring that he too would continue to draw the color line and refuse to fight against a black boxer. The good news is we can move straight on to a year later when a bloke called Tommy Burns becomes the new world champion by knocking this other guy out. And it's Tommy Burns who we're really interested in because he was the one who was defending this world championship title in Rush Cutters Bay in 1908. The first heavyweight champion of the world to cross the color line. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and I guess he deserves some credit for that. So anyway, upon winning the heavyweight world title, Burns bucked Preeson, and he declared that he would, quote, defend my title as heavyweight champion of the world against all comers, none barred. By this, I mean black, Mexican, Indian, or any other nationality without regards to color, size, or nativity. I propose to be the champion of the world, not the white or the Canadian or the American or any other limited degree of champion. End quote. It's good he stipulated all that extra stuff because otherwise it would have sounded like exactly like the last guy's speech where he said, I'll face any comer. And then obviously refused to face any comer. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. So uh, finally, it looked like Johnson was going to have his chance. However, before facing Jack Johnson, 
Burns did gallantly announce that he would give the white boys a chance. So uh, what followed for the world champion Burns was a long tour of Europe, Britain, and Ireland, demanding large sums to appear in fights against opponents that he was fairly confident of defeating. Johnson followed him around the world, continuously laying down challenges, but uh, Burns seemed relatively unconcerned, uh, explaining, quote, I'm not madly in love with the game. We're out for the money, you know, end quote. So he's more or less just making sure that he gets gets his money worth out of being the world champion, since he's probably quite worried about the fact that he'd probably lose that title the second he fought against Jack Johnson. Well, it's like your contemporary NFL players, right? Get in there, get the money, get concussed, and retire to an alfalfa farm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's completely reasonable in a way to try to make your money out of a very brutal sport where you're going to get uh, injured quite badly. And also, once you've lost your championship, title you're kind of old news um so in that way it makes some sense it's also still pretty tragic for johnson who's still chasing around the world trying to um trying to finally get his chance at the title so eventually uh, burns's policy of kind of milking uh, this title for everything it's worth resulted in an ultimatum where he said if johnson really wants to fight me he ought to be glad to accept any terms i offer and my terms are thirty thousand dollars win lose or draw Probably sounds like a pretty fair offer to you or an outrageous offer. What do you think? Sounds like a clever man leveraging his world championship. Yeah, he's an interesting man as well because he also had uh, no manager and basically no entourage. He uh, he was uh, very worried about his finances and he took care of them all himself. And I guess he was fully leveraging this for everything it's worth. Um, this offer of $30,000 win, lose or draw is the only terms that he'll take to fight against Johnson was really remarkable in two ways. Firstly, it was a huge amount of money mm. uh, for the time. It was wildly more than any event promoter had ever paid for a boxing match by at least three times. So it was really a lot of money. And then secondly, the prize money for boxing matches had always previously, and I believe still to this day, been either granted entirely to the winner of the fight or split in some kind of pre-agreed fashion, such as 60% to the winner, 40% to the loser. This might not be the case. Maybe there are still fights where you're guaranteed a certain amount regardless of the result. But I think that it's fairly normal to, to base it on who wins mm. and loses, who gets the money. Um, so by demanding such a huge sum, regardless of whether he won or not, uh, Burns seemed to at best be acknowledging his inferiority as a boxer or potential inferiority and greedily insisting on an enormous payday regardless. And at worst, he, it, there was a, a fairly genuine concern that he was just working to an erect a financial barrier so immense that the fight would never happen in the first place. Mm. And he could then guarantee that he had the title, but come across as a person who was open to fighting against uh, black boxes. I'm not sure the public would have bought that line, but um, you never know. So Jed, you'll be very happy to know that we are now going to get to Sydney, Australia. Sydney? Where's that? I thought this podcast was about Galveston. All right, so how in the world did this fight end up taking place? Uh, and in Australia, of all places. That's what I hear you crying out, Jed. Absolutely. What I also want to know is, is there going to be any history on the stadium prior to this fight? Or is this history specifically about the fight? The uh, That's coming up right now. <laughs> and the, the stadium was built for the fighting. Ah, good. Thank you. Sorry to be uh, ahead of myself. No, it's a good no, I question. I just can't help myself when it comes to infrastructure history. Much more interesting than people. It's interesting as well because it was obviously a fairly significant piece of infrastructure because it was used for a good 60 years um, and had pretty important uh, events taking place there, musical events especially, but also boxing throughout the 1900s. 
So Jed, you'll be fascinated to hear, I hope, that the the fact that this fight took place in Rushcutter's Bay has everything to do with, and I'm not making this up, something called the Great White Fleet. Have you ever heard of it? No. Neither had I. <laughs> Everything in this story was new to me. So the Great White Fleet was basically an American publicity stunt, which involves sending 16 enormous steel battleships with white painted hulls on an around-the-world trip from late 1907 to early 1909. So it took just over a year. And they would make diplomatic stops in prominent ports along the way as they traversed the globe's oceans. And this included Sydney. I'm not sure that sending 20 battleships into someone's harbour would constitute um, a diplomatic mission as much as a veiled threat. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting what, what was uh, going on. I, I, in some ways, definitely was not perceived as a threat against uh, Sydney and Australia. And the same way that I think to this day, probably American shows a military strength to the Australian mainstream political uh, view uh, signs of reassuring signs of uh, they've got our back kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this was in the time before the First World War, when uh, many global powers were engaging in extravagant naval spending and one-upmanship, and it was kind of a way for the USA to announce its arrival on the world stage. And then the other reason, because you were saying, isn't this a little bit intimidating? It definitely was meant to be intimidating. Do you have any idea what kind of happened just before this in the Pacific that might have got the Americans worried? Oh, God. Um, you don't? You can no, just I don't. <laughs> Uh, so the Japanese fleet had caused a sensation in 1905 by humiliating the Russians in the Pacific and completely destroying their fleet, which was, again, to this kind of racialized way of thinking, a, a big event that they weren't expecting, that a kind of a Caucasian power would be absolutely destroyed by an East Asian power. So sending a huge amount of battleships through the Pacific and then around the world was kind of a way to show that the US still planned on exotic a lot of influence in the Pacific. But anyway, away from the global politics of the Great White Fleet, and uh, on to a local Sydney man by the name of Hugh, Huge Deal Macintosh. <laughs> the Huge Deal's the nickname. It's not actually... <laughs> but good, good one. <laughs> I feel like you're going to like him already <laughs> with a middle name like that. What did Huge Deal get up to? <laughs> well, Huge Deal. Huge Deal's heard about this fleet coming, and he thought this sounds like a business opportunity that can't be missed. And I'm glad that you uh, seem to be interested in the man because I thought that you might want to know a little bit more about him. And so we're going to learn a little bit of, about where he was coming from. This is Sydney related. <laughs> Fire away. So uh, Hugh was born in 1876 in Surrey Hills into modest means, uh, which quickly turned to poverty when his father died. And Hugh at this time, not a huge deal at all, uh, subsequently left home at around the age of seven, traveling around the colony of New South Wales fixing jewellery and household utensils as an assistant to a travelling tinker. After a couple of years, he evidently tired of the tinkering trade and jumped ship in Broken Hill for what promised to be better earnings, picking silver ore on the brand new mining claim there. A, a tie into Western New South Wales. Incredible. <laughs> I thought you'd be interested. Oh yeah, so it was only, it was I think less than five years after the uh, enormous potential of the Broken Hill mines was uh, first discovered. His search uh, for profitable, profitable employment led to odd jobs throughout New South Wales and Victoria, but it was back in Sydney that Hugh McIntosh really began to establish his fortune, 
with what could perhaps be the most true blue Aussie business venture of all time. Big Kev's cleaning products. It's not Big Kev's cleaning products. <laughs> Do you have any further guesses as to what this might have been? George Foreman Grill. That's not Australian. Yeah, but you can. It's a, it's a boxing-related barbecue paraphernalia. Come on. I'll allow it. That's true. All right, so uh, are you ready to find out what it was? Fairy bread. No, but you're on the right track. You're very close. It was a baked good. Mm, Lamington. No, but that's Vanilla also very nice. Uh, what if you're going to like a good sporting event? You just need to sink your teeth into something filling. A meat pie. Rich. A meat pie. Oh, I'll have to tell John. He'll be thrilled. Well, he'll find out when he listens to this podcast. So Hugh began his ascent in the business world by selling meat pies. He started out with nothing but a batch of meat pies on credit from a local bakery. And he has soon established a ring of vendors who would ply the hungry throngs at race courses and possibly even uh, these prize fights with meat pies, eventually parlaying this success into his very own pie factory in North Sydney. Is this Mrs. Mac, as in Mrs. Hugh Macintosh? I don't know. Uh, I can't tell you. We'll have to look into it. I definitely thought this is where this was gearing up for. And today's most famous pie brand was started right there by Huge Deal, which would in fact make him one. So the Huge Deal is more to do with this uh, this later boxing promotion. Um, but I mean, this is how he got his capital at the start. I mean, that would be a great story if that is the history of Mrs. Mac. I wish I could tell you. Maybe we'll have to look it up and add it at the end of the episode <laughs> as a bonus. Well, let's stick to what he did do for sure. <laughs> okay, we'll stick to the actual facts as far as I know them. So Hugh, huge deal Macintosh, um, got into staging major events uh, himself after a fairly unsuccessful career as a professional cyclist led to a far more successful career as a cycling promoter. And this was during the golden age of cycling at the turn of the century, which you better believe is going to be the subject of a future episode. <laughs> Good. Uh, so when he learned of the itinerary of the Great White Fleet, he, he had his pie money. He'd done some cycling promotion. He thought this was an opportunity that couldn't be missed. So figuring that the huge influx of American sailors would be uh, eager for entertainment and flush with cash to splash, Macintosh thought that a boxing match between the Canadian, but why not basically American world champion Burns and Australia's best boxer, Bill Squires, as far as I know, no relation to the beer brand, uh, would be just the ticket for these sailors. The legend goes that Macintosh wandered down in the shabbiest suit he could find to a vacant lot in Rushcutters Bay. And once the gullible owner finally saw him and came over to ask what he was up to, Macintosh explained that he was thinking of putting on a two-man show to make a few bob out of the sailors. Apparently, he was able to sign off on a two-year lease for the lot, paying the paltry sum of two pounds a week. And the landowner was then stunned when a few days later, huge quantities of construction material arrived on the site and an octagonal open-air stadium for up to 20,000 spectators was erected. <laughs> Did he have a DA for that? Uh, I think Macintosh got away with it. No problems. Different world. So yeah, Macintosh calmly explained that this uh, little two-man show was in fact the Burn Squires fight. And uh, he seems to have just got away with it and made made a made a killing. And he bankrolled That's this a huge deal. He bankrolled a fight between the world champion boxer and Australia's best boxer on on the pie money. Well, the pie money is how he starts out. I don't know if he made quite a bit of. I think actually he did make quite a lot of money on the cycling promotion as well. Yeah, at this point he was he was a wealthy man and he had enough to uh, tempt Burns out to fight against. Uh, this Billy Squires that I think Burns was pretty confident that he would be able to be. I think he'd already knocked him out in his career. 
See, so Burns was up for it. Yeah, he got, got him over for some fights. According to contemporary accounts, hardly any Americans bother, bothered attending the fight, but it was enormously popular with Sydney siders, and McIntosh made a killing. Uh, and in fact, the fight was so successful that McIntosh realized he could still turn a profit if he, was, if he just offered Burns the $30,000 he was demanding to fight Johnson. And that, my friends, is how this historic heavyweight world championship fight came to take place in Sydney. Amazing. It was all based on the wealth of an existing um, promoter who just forked out the cash and got them here. Yeah, well, I think he made something late. The, the ticket sales got him about $50,000 for the original fight. I mean, obviously, he had to pay for the boxes for, with that some of that money, but he made enough profit that he just felt like, I can afford it, I can pay for, for this fight to happen, and then I'm going to make an even larger profit on the ticket sales for this one. And do we know what Jack, Jack Johnson's fee for appearance was? Your questions are always so timely, Jed. That yeah, so that that's we, that's the man who we've kind of forgotten in all of this furor about huge deal in his pies is that uh, Jack Johnson was understandably upset when he was only offered five thousand dollars to appear in this fight, a sixth of uh, what Burns was earning, but he couldn't turn down the opportunity that had for so many years been completely denied to him, and so he sailed for Sydney. A cunning businessman, that Macintosh. Yeah, he was. I think he was also, as a lot of cunning businessmen probably are, a bit of a bit of a rough guy around the edges. Dickhead. Yeah, yeah. You can put it different ways. Um, but you know, he knew, he knew how to cut a deal. Um, so Johnson had, in fact, previously been to Sydney in 1907, so about a year before. Uh, since Burns was at that time kind of swanning around fighting Englishmen that he knew he could beat. Johnson thought that if he could go to Australia and beat the Australian champion, Squires, then it would uh, only help to pile on the pressure on Burns to fight against him. So on this first occasion, he had been greeted with a sort of patronizing fascination by the public in Sydney, which we will see was later to change uh, on his second visit. But during the first visit, he stayed at the Sir Joseph Banks Hotel in the suburb of Botany on the north shore of Botany Bay in a building that still stands today. Do you happen to know of this building? In Botany? Yeah. Probably not. There is still a Sir Joseph Banks Hotel in Botany, uh, but it's a 1920s pub. It's not perhaps a reason to go to Botany just to see it. Um, but the original uh, Sir Joseph Banks Hotel is just two blocks away and still stands, but it's now an apartment complex. But it's a very beautiful building. Hmm. Have to head down there and check it out. Yeah, I, I mean, I plan on doing that quick smart as well when I'm back in Sydney. Uh, so it was built in the 1840s, this building. So it's pretty, pretty old. And it was the premier kind of place to go for much of the 1800s, for much of the 1800s for Sydney ciders. I mean, it had an enormous ballroom and restaurant and pleasure grounds, which tens of thousands of Sydney ciders would flock to on the weekend to picnic and enjoy attractions such as the miniature railroad and zoological gardens, which contained a Bengal tiger, elephants and a giraffe well none of that is what springs to mind when you say a pub in botany yeah sorry it, it was a hotel oh sorry i just assumed that the joseph banks hotel was a kind of rough wharfies type pub which was obviously very far from the mark well i yeah i also think that you know enough about sydney to probably know that most of the rough wharfies were probably around darling harbour that area in that area of uh, sydney. yeah it's just hard to so, consider yeah. botany as anything other than that yeah, well, it, at that point, going out on a limb, I don't think it was a particularly important functioning port. I think it was kind of it was it was the out very much outskirts of Sydney. You had to, in the mid eighteen hundreds, you had to take a longish carriage ride out there, and it was a pleasure ground. Yeah, well, I was, I was wondering why Johnson ended up so far away from the city, and was wondering if it was some sort of uh, racial segregation um, move. But 
maybe it was just an extremely nice country hotel and he wanted to stay there. Yeah, I actually, I can't uh, 100% say whether it was also had something to do with racial segregation. Definitely when he was in America, he would have to go through multiple, multiple hotels to find a place to stay at night because he would be turned down over and over again. So it could have had something to do with it. But the Sir Joseph Banks Park, which exists today, and which I used to go to in my youth to watch uh, running races. I don't know if you ever heard of the, I think it's called the Botany Bay Gift, but that's an aside. That park, I didn't, I didn't realize I was very young at the time, so it's probably unsurprising, was actually the, the pleasure gardens of this hotel. I haven't heard of any of that. Yeah, great. Well, that, you have to go and check it out now. So when Johnson stayed there, the, uh, the owner actually had a big wooden pavilion built in the gardens, uh, where as many as a thousand Sydney siders would come on their carriages. Well, yeah, still carriages probably at this time on afternoons to watch Johnson train. All right. So the, the rather heavy handed symbolism of this great white fleet that has just come through uh, into Sydney, the possibility of a black man defeating a white man to become the heavyweight world champion, the uh, apparent threat of the Japanese in the Pacific, all of this kind of led to the situation where Sydney had whipped itself up into something of a racial frenzy by the time Jack Johnson arrived to fight Burns for the world heavyweight title. On the day of the fight, Johnson entered the ring as 20,000 spectators hurled racial slurs at him. And as the bulletin put it, he was subjected to all the hatred, this is a quote, of 20,000 whites for all the Negroes in the world. Sydney Siders, the newspaper continued, had not come to see a fight so much as to witness a black aspirant for the championship of the world beaten to his knees and knocked out. Well, this is a horrible story. Yeah, I mean, it is a horrible story. Honestly, reading this guy's biography is absolutely horrifying. But he's a fascinating figure. And he, I don't know how he got through it all, but he had a really interesting personality. And I would highly recommend uh, looking into him more. He'd been fighting in rings surrounded by people who were hurling abuse at him for most of his career. And he was, as was often the case, the vastly superior fighter in this case. And you can see uh, from the surviving minutes of original film footage of the bout, which still exists and is freely available on YouTube, that he was vastly more skilled and powerful than Burns. By the 14th round, Johnson was pummeling Burns so badly and knocking him repeatedly to the ground that the police signaled for the fight to stop. And the referee, who was none other than Hugh, huge deal Macintosh... <laughs> Another underqualified referee. Yeah, <laughs> he declared Johnson the winner. You, I thought you might be intrigued by how old this film footage is. I, w- I was surprised that there was film footage of this fight from the early 1900s. Um, it is indeed impressively early. The, I think the earliest film footage overall ever from Australia is only about 10 years earlier. So this is the kind of early days of film. Um, but these films were often made, in fact, always made of big fights around the world. And then they would be shipped off in steamships around the world to be shown in projection halls. And they made a lot of money. In fact, they made more money than the ticket sales of the fights. Just like the TAB today. Yeah. And so, Jed, that was my story from Sydney for you today, explaining the origins of uh, what was the Sydney Stadium and the heavyweight world championship fight in Rushcutters Bay that I think very few Sydney siders have ever heard of, because I certainly had never heard of it before. What did you think? That is absolutely fascinating. I have some questions. Um, so did the did that 20,000-seat stadium that Huge Deal threw up um, at short notice by the sounds of it, was that the very same stadium that stood until the 60s? Yeah, great question. So about four years later, there was some renovations to it where a metal roof was placed over the top of it. And that 
after that time, often it was affectionately known as the tin shed. And I think during that renovation, they probably touched up the fairly hastily thrown together stadium. But more or less, yes, it stayed the same. And what happened to the landowner? He only had two years of the lease on it. I suspect he well, yes, so... made a claim for a slightly uh, fairer remuneration once he was the owner of a stadium. Yes, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, so the the lease was the first two years uh, was on this amazing two pounds a week, and then this, and then he also very cleverly signed up for the second, so another two years on top of that, so the third and fourth year, um, for only four pounds a week. So he got four years out of it, and I believe in 1912 when this uh, metal roof was thrown over it, at that point he sold it. I don't know how he would have sold it because he didn't own the land, but apparently he also managed to make money out of this because I guess he owned the stadium on the land. He uh, managed to make a mozza out of that as well. Well, good, good on him. The other thing I was wondering is about the aftermath of the fight. Obviously, you know, there was a lot of um, vitriol in the room and upset probably a lot of angry people who didn't get the result they were hoping for. Did we have sort of some sort of foreshadowing of Cronulla 2005 in Rushcutters Bay? Very good question. Uh, in this case, I don't believe that there was anything quite like that that happened afterwards. I think there were a lot of people who went home very disappointed. There was, however, a massive amount of racial-based rioting in America after another fight, which you'll be unsurprised. Well, no, actually, you'll probably be surprised to hear was when Mr. Alpha Alpha came out of retirement, billed as the Great White Hope to take down Jack Johnson. And actually, the phrase the Great White Hope was used through sports throughout the 1900s and originated... uh, from Jack Johnson being the heavyweight world champion and the press just going wild trying to figure out who could beat him. It has nothing to do with the Great White Fleet, which was just literally white. No. That, yeah, I don't know whether it was a symbolic white fleet. It seems like a problem. At least I know that it was definitely perceived that way by a lot of people in Sydney, that it, that it was the Anglo-Saxon right. race showing their, their supremacy in the Pacific. Whether that was the intention... I don't know, but putting it at Americans in the early 19, like 1907, I wouldn't put it past them. The, oh, sorry, right. You were asking about kind of race riots and the response. So after the, after the Alpha, Alpha, the Mr. Alpha, Alpha, uh, Jim Jeffries, he fought against Jack Johnson and he lost that fight. And after that, there were riots throughout America in which between 11 and 26, depending on different estimates of black Americans were killed. And hundreds of uh, other black Americans were injured. I mean, I think he would have done himself a service by not coming out of retirement. Yeah. But I, again, I think that the public pressure was on him to come out of retirement because they thought he was so great and they, they were searching for a great way. And the guy had been pulling out weeds for the last decade. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much actual manual labor he did on the um, farm. I'm not sure. Well, thank you for sharing that story, Alistair. That's very interesting. Is there, are there any, I guess remaining pieces of physical history that relate to this story in Sydney, apart from the one-time Sir Joseph Banks Hotel in Botany. I'm really glad you asked because uh, that also occurred to me. I mean, obviously I hadn't heard of this fight. I'd never heard of Jack Johnson, uh, despite the fact that it seems like a pretty significant event to have happened in Sydney. I've looked into it a little bit. I believe that there is a very small plaque behind uh, some hedges underneath the railway overpass in Rushcutters Bay saying that the Sydney Stadium was once there, but not mentioning the fight at all. And other than that, I do not believe that there is any mention of Jack Johnson in any public space in Sydney that I know of, though I would love to be uh, proved incorrect. Sounds like a piece of buried history you've dug up. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much uh, for listening to my story, Jed. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, do you have a clue for me about the fresh content that you'll be bringing to us next episode? I do have a clue and it's a bit disappointing, but it's the best I've got. That's all right. Cause I've been, I've been dreading this clue uh, for the last two weeks. Cause I'm sure that I'm not going to be able to do as well as you did. So the clue is that this story is about a, a, a part of Sydney where journeys have been beginning for over 160 years. Huh, okay. That's really interesting. So the, the idea would be that you could think of something like Central Station, but it's that's not that old, I wouldn't think. Or is it that old? Um, the 100, What's 160 years ago? 160 years ago is the 1860s. I think that's because I think that the Central Station was uh, moved at some point. It used to be in a different place and then they built the new one. I don't know exactly when they built it, but that would be my guess. Maybe something to do with the train lines and Central Station. So I look forward to finding out more about it. Excellent. I look forward to filling you in on it. All right, then. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything you heard on our podcast, please email us, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com, or check out our website at storiesfromsydney.podbean.com. Please also share the love and pass this on to anyone who you think might enjoy it. See you next time. And we'd just like to add, for those that took an interest in the pie element of today's story, that Mrs. Max Pies has nothing to do with Hugh Huge Deal Macintosh whatsoever, and is in fact a family-owned pie business that was founded in Melbourne in 1954.